whether it's a river runs through it or the oxbow incident the last best place or legends of the fall why is it that so many of the books that have defined the american west come from the same place this is breakfast in montana i'm russell roland and i'm aaron parrott and we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from montana one from the past and one from the present in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books so pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast and welcome to breakfast in montana Welcome to Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. I'm Aaron Parrott. And today we're going to discuss two amazing novels. One by our friend Deborah Magpie Erling, who uh, wrote a novel in 2002, or published it in 2002, called Perma Red. And that novel has just been reissued. It's a beautiful new version. You know who published that? Isn't it Milkweed? I think maybe you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure that's right. Yeah. It is a beautiful book. Yeah. My father was, my father was an interesting man. And in you know how you see somebody through the lens of death, I guess, and time. And it makes you see someone as, you know, where my father, I always thought my father was kind of distant and cold. And in many ways he was, he wasn't a, hugger or he wasn't demonstrative and in those physical ways you know you and you didn't ever I think after I was like five years old my father you didn't sit on his lap or but my father was fierce in his love for the Mm. family but he was a boxer and he'd grown up really in a terrible way did he Uh, grow up in Spokane uh no he grew up in Rose Lake Idaho and his father was ran the what was it called? The Cougar Gulch Sawmill. And his father was really, in that time, a wealthy man. And so my grandmother died at the age of 31 in childbirth. And he was younger than her. And seven months later, when he was haying, it was a hot day and he came, my dad said he remembered being in Rose Lake and he saw my dad, his father coming in on these buckboards wagon and he goes they're laying out the picnic cloth and you know the grandma had made all these all this food and they're going to kind of celebrate the end of the harvest and uh, he said he his father's you know stripped down to his underclothing and took off his glasses and his hat and then dove into the lake at Rose Lake and then he said many came up and he was kind of sputtering and he was like I help I I need some help Mm. and this friend of his came out and had a branch and was offering it to him and he reached for this branch and then he saw my father standing in the water and he he said he smiled at me and he said I just knew that I you know this was kind of the end he said he smiled at me and then he rolled over and uh, in the water and I always was haunted by that because my dad said you know the picnic cloth that they had they put him in the back of that buckboard wagon and they covered him with the Mm. picnic cloth and then I took his glasses and his headband was still his hat was still Mm -hmm. sweaty you know had the sweat and they had headband and and they went into town so he lost both of his parents in like really a short amount of time and he had twin sisters and a brother and they were after that they were orphaned and the family just his relatives came in and just took all that money oh no just so they they had to work my dad had to work in the fields and stuff and and then he became a bo- that's the only thing that he d- he could do to save himself is become a boxer mm, and he became a champion boxer hmm. he's called the golden boy of rose lake idaho in some ways my father was a lot like my mother because he was just you know my mother was mistreated in the boarding school and my father was mistreated in his mm-hmm. home so hmm. he knew he kn- only knew a life of violence like he was treated violently hmm. how did they meet uh, my dad owned uh, 
the Saltese um, Bar and Grill, he, he had, was partners with someone else, and my mother was a waitress there. She'd gotten away from the reservation and was working there, and, mm. and my dad tried to <laughs> fell in love with my, my mother, and I don't know, she was like 19 years old, and he was 10 years older than her, and he... <laughs> used to play that, that, what is it called, um, the squaws along the Yukon. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's that uh, Johnny Horton? Was, yeah, yeah, and he was like, he would play that song over and over again, thinking that was like some message to my mother, and it was a message <laughs> to my mother. <laughs> she was really angry. <laughs> what a way to woo, Dad. So that, so, so that was their... A little tone deaf. Yeah. I didn't know anybody who was educated. You know, mm. I didn't have any... My brother finally made it through college, but in my, you know, it was only the only people who were educated were doc, you know, the doctor that I went to, the dentist. Mm. But you know, my parents both had like eighth grade educations. My oh, really? Didn't even have that. Hmm. So you grew up in Washington, right? I grew up in Spokane. Yeah. yeah. When I was eight, when I turned eighteen, because I dropped out of high school at fifteen, and I was go- going to turn eighteen, my mother goes, "Let's go and get our." GEDs together. Mm. Oh, that's awesome. So I sat with my mother and we worked over fractions and and I remember uh, there was a woman who was, you know, who was teaching us and it was at the, um, the Spokane Indian Center and she asked me like, well, what do you want to do with your education? And I said, well, I want to go to law school and I want to return to the flathead and I want to you know, I want to help my people. And she was like, she hesitated. She goes, my husband is going to Gonzaga. And I doubt whether you'll make it through even, you know, like a community college, let alone, a, you know, a, a prestigious law school like Gonzaga. And I thought, Gonzaga? I had Harvard in mind, you know. Wow. But that kind of just, you know, I went to community college, Buckhead Falls, first, at first. And just that, the way people, um, I, I just remember how I was told first by a counselor in West Valley High School that I didn't really have to work very hard because I was Indian, and Indians aren't very smart. Oh, geez. They, they like, actually said she that? She said that to oh me. Oh, my God. And she said, the best thing for you would be if you could get married. Oh, my God. And have somebody take care of you. Because my grades were, you know, I wasn't... I didn't like school. I was in an all-white school, and I wasn't treated very well. So I just remember after she said that, I looked at her, and I thought, I don't belong here. Mm. And I walked out the doors and never returned. And my father wanted me to get an education. It was really important. My, my father was German, and his mother was from England, and he had had, oh, I guess he had a high school education, but he really thought it was important to have an education. He wanted that so badly for me. So my mother said, okay, just dress up like you're going to school. Mm. <laughs> and then, like, we'll just, you know. And so I did that. My father caught on to that pretty fast. Mm. I remember <clears throat> I had really long hair at the time. And my I came out, and my dad went to work. And then and then I, I think I went back and put on, you know, regular clothes and not took off my skirt. And my dad came back, and he... He said, you're going to school. I knew you weren't going to school. And I said, I don't want to go to school, Dad. I just am not going to go to school anymore. And he goes, you're going to school. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm not. And he grabbed my hair. <laughs> I was trying to run away from my dad, grabbed my hair. And he goes, you're going to school. And my mother said, she's not going to school. And I, I saw my father cry maybe two times. And my father sat down and he cried. Wow. And he said, I want my kids to have an education. Mm. I don't want you to suffer like I did. I want you to have an education. Wow. And then years later, he told me, he goes, you saved me a lot of money. <laughs> I, I didn't have to pay, pay for your clothing or anything. And he said, you got your education anyway. But. Mm. That's awesome. I mean, the other book we're doing is James Welch's The Indian Lawyer, which came out in 1990. And, of course, one of the best parts about this whole discussion is that uh, Welch was one of Deborah's instructors and mentors when she was just starting out as a writer. So she has a lot of interesting things to say about him. 
So tell us about Welch as a teacher. Oh, you know, I, I think everybody who knew Jim knew he was mischievous. He had that little smile on his face. Like somebody would say something kind of, uh, the first time I met him was at the University of Washington. And I was taking a, I was, I thought I was, gonna, <laughs> I thought I was going to be an economics uh, major. So I was taking all these really hard classes and I saw Jim Welch was teaching and I had read Winter in the Blood. Mm. Like I'd found it in the Crescent of all places. Like they had a uh, house made of Dawn and they had, um, they had uh, Winter in the Blood. And I bought those two books and I just was astonished that he could write this book about about Indians, and it was this book that was like a life that I knew, and mm. I just couldn't believe that. Like, oh, here this is in, like, people are reading this? This was mm. published? I, I just couldn't believe it. And so um, I, when I saw that Jim Welch was at the University of Washington, I, I asked a friend, I go, do you think it would be okay if I took this class? And she was like, you better. So mm -hmm. I took it, and it was like, there must have been 35 students in that class. And so Jim came in, and there was this dolt in the class, and he said to Jim, like as Jim walked in with his Gore-Tex navy blue jacket, and he had his briefcase, and he sat it down on the table, and this guy said, who are you, mm. and why should I be taking a class with And I think there were some students who knew, like Jim, what the, the importance of Jim at that time. But a lot didn't, you know, it was just an undergraduate class. And I just remember, he just kind of smiled, and he didn't have an answer for this. The guy just kind of smiled, and he said, well, you know, I don't know. <laughs> but after that, you know, I thought about this, because I realized that um, I've told this story before to people, and they go, well, that sounds mean, but I think in light of this guy saying this to him, the first thing that he told us was, um, and because it was such a big class, and he said, I want you to look in front of you and behind you. And I want you to look to the right of you and the left of you. And I want you to look at, look at, look around the room at all these people in this classroom. And he goes, of all of you in this class, maybe five of you will go on to an advanced class in writing. And of that, five, Maybe three will continue on to another class. Of that, maybe two of you will go to graduate school and continue writing. But I would say in this whole room, maybe one of you will become a writer. And he said, are you that writer? And I like, puffed up. <laughs> and I looked around at those people and I thought, I am that writer. Uh, um, you know, and then people said, well, that, they thought that was me. And I thought, no, I, I you know, in teaching, you know, I, I've taught for, I taught for probably 30 years. I taught at Cornell and I taught here mm -hmm. for 29 years. And it, it's true. There's very few yeah. students who go on and they, per, you know, they persevere. And it really is, it's not the most talented student, usually mm -hmm. the ones that you think, oh my God, I wish I could write like this. Yeah. It's the ones who just, Hard, yeah. yeah, they're the ones who... We're living proof that you don't have to be the most talented people. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's not true. Maybe you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's not true. You lie. And you should also talk about how everybody, including Louise Erdrich at the James Welch Festival. Yeah, so... The timing of this is also very good because just uh, I think it was two weeks ago, maybe three, that they held the very first Native American uh, Lit Festival in Missoula, and it is named after James Welch, and it included some incredible Native writers like Louise Erdrich, who won the Pulitzer a couple of years ago, David Troyer. Anyway, all these people were I was actually surprised how much they talked about what a huge influence he was on them. Yeah. Made me appreciate his contribution to American literature even more than I already did. And you know, one of the interesting things that came up during that festival was that uh Sterling Holy White Mountain, who 
organized the event, he was talking with David Troyer about all these amazing native writers, including Welch, of course, and, and they were talking about how you almost never hear people cite native writers as an influence, you know, <laughs> which is bizarre. I mean, only native writers cite other native writers as an influence on their writing, but I think that's changing, especially with Louise becoming so well-known and Joy Harjo winning the, or becoming the poet laureate. I think you're right. And I know Rick DeMarinis was really good friends with Jim Welch, and I'm sure he would have, I'm sure they would have mutually referred to each other as influences. Yeah, I, I would imagine most of the Missoula crowd was uh, highly influenced by Welch's work, right? Yeah, and in our conversations about this book, I think we both agreed that the Indian lawyer is pretty unique among the Welch canon, at least in my mind. I I guess I've come to realize all his books are pretty different. I might put Fool's Crow and Winter in the Blood and Heart Song of Charging Elk in the same category. But, uh, you know, earlier we did Death of Jim Loney and this book, I think, are pretty different from those yeah, other books. Yeah, he's definitely not a guy who did the same thing over and over again. He tried to address different aspects of the American Indian experience, I think different ways and uh, Indian lawyer is about a star basketball player from the Blackfeet reservation who goes on to become a, a lawyer goes to school in Missoula and as the story develops he decides to run for Congress which so yeah one of the things that's unusual about this book is it's set in Helena right um, which of course I I loved you know seeing all these familiar landmarks and trying to figure out where exactly the dive bar is out there on Montana Avenue. It must be the hub that he's talking about. Mm -hmm. um, but the Montana club and just a lot of the action takes place in the lawyerly circles of Helena where, you know, seat of government and all that. Um, yeah. But it's also interesting in that the main protagonist is uh, of course, Indian negotiating the white world. But he goes back to Browning to visit his grandparents. He was raised by his grandparents and his first love interest. And of course, the the interesting thing about this book and about Permarette, I think, and it reminded me of uh, interviews that I did with two women who are prominent in the Indian education world, both yeah. Mandy Smoker and Arena um, Charette. Uh, Mandy was the head of the Indian education department at, at OPI for many years and now she does the same thing for Pacific Northwest and um, Rena Charette kind of did a similar has a similar job with the American Indian Higher Education Consortium and both of these women talked about how part of their job means that they have to come into every meeting realizing that there's going to be people in the in the room that don't take them seriously so they're going to have to work harder to earn the respect of people than most people would and you know this is just something we don't think about right and both of these books i think address that aspect of the native experience in a way that didn't feel like victimhood it was more like you know this is the reality of the situation it's it's what yeah and in, with in in the case of both books, I think great examples are, uh, you know, Indians going into bars. Right. And in Perma Red, you know, there's signs that say no Indians allowed. Yeah. And yet, you know, it seems like sometimes they can drink in there and it's okay. But um, just there's this whole expectation of second class citizenhood, right. I guess, in Perma Red, which is set, you know, a little earlier than Jim Welch's book. But there's that great scene in the Jim Welch book when he's going to go into this dive bar and look for the people that are blackmailing him. And he sits in the car for a minute and thinks about what it's going to be like when he walks in there and how the fact that he's an Indian is going to make heads turn. And, and then he just kind of shrugs it off and says, well, I've been in this situation a lot of times before. So he's clearly just used to it. Yeah. And, you know, it's a sad commentary about the, the way that things are that that's just their 
their reality they have to think about that stuff way more than we do and it must be exhausting sometimes you know right so i thought about that so just to segue from your Mm -hmm. past to your book Mm -hmm. it makes me think of how the main character it's felt like what you were trying and correct me if i'm wrong but it felt like what you were trying to accomplish with this was to convey or portray a character who is just trying to make the least bad choice (laughs) out of a lot of bad choices yes (laughs) (laughs) you know i i was actually kind of surprised by that you know when Uh, i first when that book first came out and there were so many people who told me that you know well louise just made a lot of bad choices and uh and I thought, wow, I I thought she just made choices for survival. Yeah, that's kind exactly. of was my side. I didn't think of her her choices as bad, just... Well, they, she didn't have much... She just didn't have many options. Right. I guess that's my point, is that the options were... <laughs> you know, and that is so true. And it, you know, it's based on the life story of my Aunt Louise. Oh, really? I was going to ask about that. in 1947. Oh, uh, okay. And so the original ending of Prima Red... Uh, uh, the voice, w- well, the voice was in, I had, what, seven first-person voices, mm. uh, and I had to, you know, I ha- uh, my agent said, okay, five. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I so I cut it down to five, and then when I worked with Greg Michelson at Blue Hen, he said, all right, Deborah, two, mm. pick the characters, like, and I knew it had to be the objectification of Louise, which was... right. You know, I wanted that to be uh, where she didn't have a voice until the very end. And in the original, she ha- she has a voice. And it's um, when when Louise died uh, a couple days after Christmas in 19, yeah, 1947. And she was coming back. She danced in paradise that night with these uh, two white men. One was named Buster Kelly, as I recall. And... Uh, they were driving back and someone, it was really a foggy night, really icy cold there on that. It was the old highway, mm. um, not the 200. And they were driving and somebody hit them from behind and their mm. car just spun and went off, landed on its top on the railroad tracks. And uh, she was removed from the car and uh, laid on the top of a, it was a flatbed railroad car. Mm. And my uncle, who worked as a Gandhi dancer at the time, came down, you know, the hill mm. and he saw her. Oh. And he said, she's alive, because they put a blanket over her. And he said he heard her moaning, and, and they said, oh, no, 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 that's just, uh, uh, what do they call that when you do? Death rattle. So my mother was 15 at the mm. time. She was staying with friends in Dixon, and so my great-grandmother lived out in Perma, you know, far from town, far from anybody. And so they uh, they came, the sheriff, he was not a tribal police officer, the sheriff came to pick up my mother to identify her sister. And so my mother was really afraid of him. And then my mother was always kind of a scaredy cat. She was afraid of ghosts. And Louise always teased her about ghosts. And he said, your sister died tonight. And uh. I want you to identify her. So they got to that Ferrans funeral home in in St. Ignatius and it was I don't know four or five in the morning and so he said well I'm not going to wake up the undertaker and my mom said I'm not important enough she thought well I'm not important enough for you to wake up the undertaker so she said well good so maybe I don't have to identify her and so he parked the car and then he went around the funeral home and he was looking for he shut rattled the doors they were locked and he went around looking for a window, and he found a window, and he called my mom, and she said it was so cold, and she's standing out there. She'd been in the car, and her teeth were chattering, and she was scared. He saddled his hands, and he lifted the window, and he said, and he took his flashlight, and he shone it in, and she said it just happened to be the room where Louise was oh. in. And she goes, I saw her hair first, and he pushed her through the window, and she was standing in this room, and he said, go 
take off the sheet. And she <laughs> said, I know my Lord. sister. This is because I could see her hands, you know. This is just awful. Yeah, it is an awful story. <laughs> and so the original one I have where Louise turns, and I think there's a passage where um, Baptiste says, when he gives up drinking, he says, and I see throws the bottle, and he sees all the light that ever was shining mm. in the grass. And so that's what Louise turns and sees the light. Uh. And then she says, it's really just all the light I've ever seen. Mm. And then, like, my agent said, I love this story, and I love this ending. So she tried to sell it, and so I didn't have enough money to have a phone at the time, so I had a phone card. I was staying up at the cabin, (laughs) my little cabin up in the Flathead. So I drive into town, like, every two weeks and get a report. Mm. And I go in, and she's like, oh, they love it. There's these, you know, she was was trying to sell it to the big shot publishing houses and she goes oh they love it they said don't sell it until they finish and then I come back the next week uh, two weeks later they all pass oh no it kept happening again and again and and she said well Deborah I just have to tell you it's because the hero you know the heroine dies Mm. and and I said well should I rewrite the ending and she said no but it was about I don't know it was maybe about the fourth time that I came in and she said they'd all passed. And I said, um, I'd never heard her. She's a really tough New York agent, Sally Wofford Duran. She was crying. She had tears in her voice. I could hear. And she goes, I don't want you to re- rewrite this ending. But I knew I had to. So mm. I went home that day. And it was like 4.30 in the afternoon. And by, by about 3 in the, yeah, about 3 that night. I, or that morning. Right. I had rewritten it. And it was a substantial chunk I just mm. remember just blazing through it but did she go back to some of the same people or no you know she didn't she so <clears throat> tried a different approach and she said I want a good editor for you because mm. it was a yeah, to be honest the, the book was a mess <laughs> it was, I tried to be write the great American novel, mm. and Jim Welch was saying, I'm going to pull that novel from you. Like, it's time to give it up. Time. And I kept working on you know, you know. I was going to ask, how long, how long did you work on you this know, book? You um, know, when I'm saying, probably full time, maybe like three years. Mm-hmm. But it took so long to sell it, and it took so long. So I kept tinkering with <coughs> it. It wouldn't sell, so it was, you know. So I'd keep, or I couldn't, I couldn't get it to an agent. No agent, every agent passed on it until Kim Barnes said, hey, I've got a really good agent. Oh. And she Okay, sent so she it. helped you. Yeah, she did. That's she cool. She was really great. Yeah. And so I always say, like, this is my agent, and, you know, she's, she's, if when she's, when Sally's looking for work, I'll tell people, and I mm. try to help them find an agent, you know, my students. I think that's really important to pass that along to people. I don't understand the big, like, I was like, it's like people can look at your page and tell you, you know, you're in your acknowledgments. Right. It's and not a secret. Like, why, why, why don't you help people right. like, get published? I, I've never understood that. Right. But. Um, since you mentioned um, your aunt and when she died, one of, one of the things that really struck me about this book was I couldn't tell when it was taking place. It could have been the 70s mm. or the 30s or mm. the 50s. And I really liked that about it, that it was just kind of this timeless right. period. In your mind, is it in the 40s? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. And, you know, I think... Um, There's a few hints, like the price of drinks is, <laughs> is so low. I was like, oh, this can't be the 70s. <laughs> well, I think... Um, I think that Louise was really contemporary. Yeah, like just exactly. the way, it, like um, mm-hmm. I, I, I just found uh, who posted this. Um, someone posted on on Facebook. I'd seen the photograph of Louise before, but she's with these these two men, and she's got a bottle of beer, and they colored it. And so oh. here she is, and so it's kind of a lewd picture, and they're both kind of playing with their beer bottles. But she's, she, her, she's drinking this bottle of beer, and they colored it. And for the first time, because I used to, you know, I was told all the time by my mother and by many people when I talked to them in the reservation, like, what was Louise like, and do you remember her? And I, re- I had men who, you know, Louise had been dead at that time for, you know, 40 years, and these men would say, 
I remember the color of her eyes in sunlight. Hmm. You know, she had like her eyes would turn green. I remember her hair. She had the most beautiful legs. And one guy talked about how he'd given her a ride, and he was she was getting out of his truck, and he was filling up his gas, and he said her skirt snagged on the on his seat and pulled the skirt up so he could see her legs and she had the same measurements my mother said as Be Betty Grable so <laughs> she stepped out and he was saying how beautiful she was but on top of that you know when I see pictures of her I don't I don't think she was necessarily beautiful she just had that spark or something indefinable yeah. something can you can see it when they colored that picture mm. Like, I looked at that and I thought, oh my gosh, mm. like you can really see. And she was, you know, they, I guess they said wild, but she was so, you know, she was tough and she didn't let that boarding school destroy her spirit. Mm -hmm. She just was so determined. And they were terrible. Yeah, uh, right. Their admission at the time. Yeah. This, and this was the mission in St. Ignatius? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. You know, one of the things that struck me in reading this book, rereading it, I read it years ago, um, but it's interesting to read a book in the current political climate and to realize that a lot of what people are really upset about today, including the rollback of Roe v. Wade, um, are things that people were thinking about and paranoid about 30 years ago, including yes. James Welch in this book. And I want to read a section here that I think speaks to both the political climate in Montana as well as the national level. And it's amazing how prescient he was. Um, so he's having a conversation with a political guy named Fabares. The main character's name is Sylvester. So that's it exactly, Sylvester. That's it. Montana is becoming one big reservation and all the people in it are the Indians. They make noises about self-determination, but we know who up to this point determines what's good for Montana. Not the Indians, not the people of Montana, but the special interests, the giants and their backers. And these backers are the gangly on the body politic. They are spread throughout and they have interests you wouldn't believe. They would sell out Montana for an opportunity to have a photo hanging on the wall of them kissing George Bush's ass. <laughs> you wouldn't believe it, Sylvester. But this is worst case scenario, although it is closer to reality than your best case scenario. Even here on the state and local level, the conservative done nuts and the constitutionalists are posing a real challenge to our candidates. They call themselves the mainstream and the scary thing is they might be right. This country is turning in a bad direction, Sylvester. These people you wanted to appeal to, the Indians, the poor people, the conservationists, they're on the outside looking in. And I'm afraid they're going to stay there for the next four years, possibly the next eight years. And then Sylvester says, you talk as though George Bush has already run. Don't the Democrats have a chance? We're doing pretty well in this state, especially in the congressional races, the governor's race, most of the local key races. Montana always votes Republican in the presidential race, and they probably will this time. But otherwise, we're in pretty good shape. I'm something of an alarmist, Sylvester. I guess that's part of my job as well as the cheerleading part. Whatever it takes to get Democrats off their asses, I do. But this time I'm scared, really scared. I can see all the social gains we've made in the past 20 years going down the tubes. You get a Republican administration back in there, a conservative Supreme Court, poof, no more legalized abortion, no more desegregation. That's just for starters. Yeah. Um, so I was amazed that, you know, he he was a character is that worried 30 years ago. And yes, as it turns out, with with good cause. Yeah, it's incredible how he called it. I mean, and, and like you said, that was that was at a time when things were actually pretty balanced in, in Montana and nationally a little bit more so than they are now. So, God, he really called it. <laughs> So one other thing we for sure talked about, um, and I don't remember the gist of the conversation leading up to you reading the last couple paragraphs of the book. Mm -hmm. One of the driving storylines in this book is that Sylvester, he's part of a, a parole board and he gets blackmailed by 
a woman whose husband is in prison. He doesn't realize it when he starts an affair with her. So that's one of the interesting aspects of the story is that this guy, despite all his conscientious and cautious approach to everything, he ends up getting hoodwinked by this woman and it, it forces him to drop out of the race, which is, you know, also kind of inter uh, interesting parallel to the things, things that are happening these days where Democrats have to drop out for the smallest infraction. And <laughs> we got rapists in the Republican Party that don't even get. This is the very last paragraph, which is a really fantastic sort of insight into Sylvester Yellow Calf's, um, the way things turn out for him. This woman is watching him from her window. As Lena watched, the clouds grew lower and thicker and the first splotches of sleet hit her windshield and she could not see the mountains anymore. She started her car and crept up and over the hill. She glanced over at the basketball court but Sylvester didn't notice the car, nor did he notice the sleet, the freshening of the wind from the north. He was going one-on-one -on -one against the only man who ever beat him. Which, yeah, that's a great line. One of the best lines ever of the final, final line of a book. <laughs> I think one of the main themes that came out of both books, at least for me, was the way you put it when we were talking to... Uh, Deborah. Deborah was. Uh, the, it's not so much that these characters are defeated as they're just presented with a real limited index mm. of choices. And I don't think either book, you know, I think a lot of critics might call them sort of fatalistic, but in, in spite of what seems like fatalism, there's just the reality of limited choices and doing the best with what you're, what you're given. And both characters, I think, end up being pretty triumphant. Maybe not, uh, you know, he doesn't end up a congressman like he thought he could and do good things for the state, but he realizes that it's his own fault, sort of. He takes yeah. responsibility for it. You know, I guess it's, in a sense, it is fatalist. It's kind of the essence of Greek tragedy is that, you know, things happen that aren't your fault, but you're absolutely responsible for them. Yeah. And I think they both have a resilience that kind of goes against what a lot of people sort of assume about Native Americans. One of the things I really liked about Louise Erdrich's um, opening remarks when she opened the festival, she talked about how Welch was a writer who didn't focus on the plight of the Native Americans. He was more interested in talking about what they do to um, overcome the, the boundaries and, and challenges that they're constantly faced with. No, yeah. I think that's, I think that's a pretty good assessment. And when we last talked about Welch with Joey Running Crane, who's Blackfeet, he kind of said the same thing that, you know, it's hard to depict reservation life without turning it into kind of uh, what did he call it? Something like uh, poverty porn. <laughs> right. Right. And um, so I think Welch really does a great job of that and also presenting the character as, you know, totally ignorant of his own history. Like he, at some point in the novel, yeah. he's like, I don't even know Blackfeet history. Right. And he's like, I wish I'd paid more attention when I was a kid, but you know, really that's the case of your mainstream white American is they don't, they, they don't have any sense of history or, yeah, uh, you know, how this country was founded or any of that. And I think you said it in an earlier discussion that white people have this tendency to just assume that Indians are all really into the yeah. cultural aspects of their Indianness, and they know all these stories and right and that's a myth you know I, i'm kind of surprised more of welch's work hasn't been made into films so i'm glad to see that um perma red is being turned into a television series a limited series they're working on produ producing that now and uh yeah it'd be nice to see more of welch's work 
put in film. I know the the Smith brothers did a version of was it Winter of the Blood? Yeah. Did you ever see it? I did not. Um, yeah, I haven't seen it either. I don't know why. But it seems like that would be a pretty audacious book to try to turn into a film. Mm. Whereas the Indian lawyer, uh, like Permared, just seems to me both of them are just sort of cinematographic in scope already. Yeah. And they would be, you know, they're naturals for film. They both have a really clear set of characters and plot. Um, yeah. So it was interesting to hear Louise talking about this book last night. Yes. And um, I wondered what your thoughts are were about what she said about it, especially about the shame. She, I thought it was interesting. That well, it made me want to read it again. I have to say, I like read it when it first came out, and I think I read it too quickly. But Robert, my husband, Robert Stubblefield, mm-hmm. has always said that's the book, and that book should be made into a movie. It really should. Because it's got all the you know, components of a really compelling story. And it's so different from his other stuff. Yeah, and I thought about that. And I thought about, you know, what she said about shaming. Mm -hmm. It uh, made me think of another uh, indigenous writer who has been ostracized. Oh. Uh, And so it it made me wonder about that. Mm. There's a part of me that was wondering if there's like a cryptic, kind of message there. Mm-hmm. That is interesting. Um, do you know the death of Jim Loney? That is yes. It? Yeah. I used to teach the death of Jim Loney. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. I, um, but that book and this book, I think, are kind of different from the, the rest. Yeah. But from the, his others. But this one especially, it's it's almost like it's like ready-made for a movie. It's got all the plot elements. And aren't they making a movie of Permarin? Yeah, tell us about that. Uh, well, TV series, right? Um, I'm like, uh, you know, it's been on the tables of so many. Uh, like Linwood Fields, um, who's a producer. And uh, at the time, Maya Ditloff and uh, the screenwriter Winona Wilms, all native, uh, except for Linwood, um, took like took it down to Hollywood and really uh, made a pitch for it, and we had it at one network like that was really interested. So the contracts were starting to go out, and it was ready to you know my agent was contacting me. I had to get another Hollywood agent, and then all of a sudden it just went mm. you know like that person I don't know whether they were fired or they stepped down from their position. But all of a sudden it was off again. And then somebody said, well, don't feel bad. That's just the way it goes. But, you know, I I did feel bad because it it wasn't so much like it it would be nice to have the money. Of course, I would really like the money. But it was uh, it was to have that story told. And it it just Mm -hmm. was so important to these young women that I was working with. And, Mm. you know, Ivan and Ivy McDonald, the filmmakers were saying, you know, we go out to the reservations and we talk to people and that's the book that these young women are talking about. Is that right? Because mm-hmm. oh, they, you know, because there's a missing, there's a yeah. murdered oh, woman. Yeah, totally. It's the, very you know. con- timely. Yeah, so so it's surprising how how a book like that, it was from stories and most of the, some of the outlandish stories in that book are, are true stories mm. or things that happen. So what about the character of Baptiste is... Now, Baptiste, you know, every I have so many people come up to me from mm. the flathead, and they'll go, "I know who." That <laughs> <is."> <laughs> you know, and they just I like felt like I knew who it was yeah, too. I like I know, who, and and I thought, hmm, he is a total amalgamation mm. and total like invented character, but he does seem so real to yeah. me as well. It's but he was like when I worked for. For the tribe, and I was a, I was like the first public defender, tribal court advocate of the Flathead Nation. And so I worked with so many people who were, you know, so much like Baptiste, who had so mm. much going for them. Um, you know, and I, I was I was incredibly privileged to to represent and work with um, Lasso Stasso Jr., who was one of the most powerful medicine Mm. You know, men in in um, they was that they say Leonard Crowdog is was the most powerful or most powerful medicine man in the Western Hemisphere, but Lasso Stasso Jr. and his father, his father was um, 
visited by all of the mm. all of the animals and so he had and so lasso stasso was incredibly powerful uh he had pearlescent green eyes you couldn't really see the pupil in his eyes when he spoke to you wow and uh he um he was an incredible person mm. uh but he just had such a hard time and he he died of uh, uh he died he was hit by a car when he was uh. walking by the road and he died um, mm. but yeah those were those were the days so he, it's a little bit him mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. the memories that i have of him and how you know how how really powerful his pro- his medicine was so powerful that i used to be told you know um be careful because he can't control, he's not in, mm. you know, when he drinks, he's not in control of your his power. And so uh, I don't, I was working with uh, the esteemed and, you know, honorable um, Judge Burke, Louise Burke on the reservation. She's a Kootenai. She, she was a Kootenai woman. And she was really maternal, very, very motherly toward me. And I loved her. I had shared mm. an office with her, and I remember I was talking to Lasso, uh, Mr. Stasso, and I was talking to him, and he said, I want to show you something, and he went out to his car, and he brought back a, a medicine bundle, and he said, I want to show you this, and he started opening up this bundle, and she felt it. It was so powerful that from the long hallway, back she came running out like a bear really and just knocked me off (laughs) like not knocked me away from him and you know stood in front of him she goes you get get out of here she told me right now get and then (laughs) uh, she said he could and she said what are you doing you could kill her with this and she said you could kill she said he could have killed you and your family he is like she goes. This isn't right, Les. Take that, like, take wow. that back. And uh, and he, you know, he he apologized profusely um, in his own way. Like it, he. I remember he 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 seemed ashamed of. So it it almost sounds like some someone with that much power maybe f- was uncomfortable with it. Like maybe that maybe it was uh, a burden for him. No, what was a burden was um, public law 280 uh, and the cro- and the concurrent jurisdiction that we had with the state of Montana, the the tribe, because um, his son he they they were poor, but they were rich in history and culture and you know native practice and they were incredible they were incredible family and they um, but they didn't live according to the standards mm. of like you'd so you'd have a, oh. a non-Indian social worker come in and tell oh. an Indian wh- how they had to live and he had a drinking problem but he loved his son mm-hmm. and his wife sometimes you know had a drinking problem but they they loved their son Brian and he was three years old and they took him away oh. from him oh, man. and it just that was like that was his beloved son oh. and the son that would inherit the mm. his legacy and his so his medicine and it it tore him it, up. Cru- it crushed both of them mm. it yeah that was one of the worst things cases i've ever worked on jeez oh, um you know and it made me uh well it made me want to be you know more like work with you know work with the tribe and yeah you know uh do all everything that i could but it, it kind of did something to me too and mm. you know like i just don't remembered him and so a lot of Baptiste is that um, is 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 him, mm. um, but he's also like just an amalgamation of mm-hmm. so many, so many other Indian men that I met who, mm. you know, were struggling and wanted to be better, uh, but somehow couldn't. Um, I know how strong that can be. I've lost so many family members to alcoholism mm-hmm. I've had other family members which I can't even believe say well if they wanted to they could control it and I thought no they can't mm-hmm. <laughs> like can't you see like they've struggled they've been in all these yeah. programs they've tried and tried and tried and you know I had a niece who who um, 
died uh, from alcoholism, and she tried so hard. Mm. You know, she just, and I remember her saying, I just can't stop thinking about vodka. I can't mm. stop thinking about, you know, and here she is trying to, you know, she was in the hospital and almost died and then made a miraculous recovery and then, you know, died like maybe a year and a half later and mm. just could mm. not. So, you know, I think about, you know, what it takes to, um, what it takes to overcome that sometimes for, you know, for for some people. Yeah. And uh, if you could control it, it wouldn't be a problem. Yeah, exactly. And that's a firm grasp on the obvious, which like yeah. so many people don't <laughs> yeah, seem to possess. Really so what was it like to hear Louise Erdrich, Erdrich say, Perma Red is a great book from the stage last night. That oh. must have been pretty awesome. You know, it really... It really was, um, and I have known Louise for a long, long time. And the last time I saw her, like this sounds like I said, it, it sounds so stuffy. I go because <laughs> I told her, I go, the last time I saw you, we were in Paris. <laughs> you know, the last time we were in the American Cafe with Sherman <laughs> Alexi. And I remember there was uh, people who were, you know, they're really celebrities in in France. Mm. She's a big celebrity. And so is Jim Harrison, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, Crumley, Jim Crumley. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh my God! We were, we were <laughs> we were in I forget what bar, and somebody said, "Are you American?" Like the bartender was like, "Are you American?" And the, it, and asked us a little bit about ourselves, and he said, "Do you know the writer Jim Crumley?" <laughs> I was like. Yes, As a and then he's like, "Oh, they know," and then <laughs> they know the writer Jim Crumley, and so we got from <laughs> It was just, it was just kind of amazing. That but, uh, back to Louise. Um, yeah, I've just known her. Like I was at Cornell, uh, and they had come. They just what they just. It was Michael Doris and and Louise Erdrich. It wasn't Dirty Dancing was popular, oh. and I remember. Uh, they said, <laughs> I think in private conversation, they were like, we just love Dirty Dancing. Yeah. Like, you can't say that to all these stuffy people. Um, but I had to go to, uh, I was a, a Ford pre-doctoral fellow, so I was heading to Washington, D.C., and that's when I told you that story last night mm-hmm. that, um, you know, I, they said, oh, well, we'll, we'll be there, and please come and see us, and so I, like a do- dummy, knew nothing about, like, I was just dressed uh, terribly, I don't know, terribly, like a tourist uh, going around D.C. all day with my friends, and we showed up at this, so we showed up at the Folger Shakespeare Library, <laughs> and what was it, was it for the Penn Faulkner, I can't remember, but uh, they were all dressed up, there was people, there was Miss Indian America, there was, uh, I think, Senator Kennedy was there. Wow. It was like all of these dignitaries, all of these really elegant people coming up in limousines. <laughs> and my, my friends were like, should we be here? Like, I go, yeah, they said to come. Like, what? We just <laughs> so I went in this hall and stuff. And then this woman, I remember, looked up at me and she was like, oh, do you have a ticket? And I said, well, we were invited by by Michael Doris and Louise Erdrich. And she says, right, <laughs> please step over here. <laughs> and then so she was just trying to ignore us. Mm. And like, and then they said, oh, they're coming, they're coming in Michael Doris and Louise Erdrich, who were such an incredibly powerful, beautiful couple. I mean, just physically and everything about them, they just, they were glittery. <laughs> and they walked, they got out of that car. And my friends were like, oh. Like, we were all, like, watching them, and they came up, and I thought, oh, and they, they said, well, we better get out of here. And so we were just getting ready to leave, and we were trying to make our way through the crowd, and Michael Doris came up behind me and grabbed my shoulder and said, oh, I was so glad you could make it, Deborah." Mm. And he goes, just wait here, we'll, we'll, we'll get you in. Oh, great. And they set all these people up, you know, <laughs> and all these fancy people and they escorted us right up to the front. And we like, got to see all these people in our shabby clothes. That's funny. And I thought, you know, like, I, I was just so proud to be, I was proud to be Indian then. Mm-hmm. I was proud to, 
I was proud to be part of a tradition where it doesn't matter like how you're dressed or it doesn't matter what your education level is or how fancy you are or if you come in a limousine or you walk in your old trodden shoes that someone will someone will take you in and say you know you're our esteemed our esteemed guest Mm. and we honor you and so I was like yeah take that Senator Kennedy Yeah, one of the things I loved about Deborah's book is uh, the characters are so vivid. Louise has, <laughs> she has all these different men that she gets tangled up with, and each of them is so different. She just has an amazing capacity for um, dealing with them and and the way they treat her. None of them are very good to her, except for one of them, and but she she just manages i mean i mean i'm uh, basically what i'm just trying to say is that the characters are incredible in that book so yeah and the you know the main male character too baptiste is yeah they're very complicated and exactly yeah i think partly what makes them so interesting is that they're not heroic or they're not all good or all bad they're complicated right. exactly they're all very complex you know I've had friends tell me, um, why do you, why do you write such brutal things? Um, you know, why, like, don't, like, women, like, there's such brutal things that happen to women, and, you know, I, I, I thought, I was kind of insulted by the question at first, yeah. I was like, mm-hmm. and then it occurred to me that, um, that what I'm doing with my writing is, uh, is, is really expressing, um, those stories of hardship, the the stories that people won't look at, right. they try they look away from, and there's a there and I thought you know some of those stories are not just about through like are not just looking at um, the way in which white people treated the indigenous population when they came to America, but it's also about the ways in which many of our customs and many of the things that made native people who we are were corrupted and were defiled and you know there's there's a part that um native people played in that Mm. uh men interesting yeah so you know the trading especially with this you know at mandan camp when uh mandan fort when there's all these traders from all of these, you know, Northwest Trading Company and Hudson Bay, they were all, you know, just, mm. there was such a influx. I mean, it must have been like incredible, almost like a trade party or something, you know, the mm-hmm. biggest powwow ever. Like the G7. Was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of the time, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a brilliant way to see it. And I think, but also, so you have this these sacred cultures doing, you know, <clears throat> where their religion has not been, I wouldn't say religion, their practice, their spiritual practices, their sacred ceremonies were not open to anyone um, unless it was to transfer power. And when you get someone who is ridiculing that and, mm. uh, you know, when you read in Lewis and Clark and you read you just read a little bit in, and there's like Sergeant Gas is uh, seeing what's there. There's ridicule. There's laughter. The women don't want to be part of that. Mm-hmm. So I thought I am taking that on, and I, I'm worried about it. You know, but it's not always comfortable. And yeah, the stories aren't. I I don't know. I don't even know if they're uh, they're not really like. I don't even know if there's something that people want to buy or read. Mm. I mean, they're dark and they're... It's always complicated, yeah. too. It is. But I just can't... I uh, Whenever I sit down to write, that's, like, where I'm going to. Mm-hmm. But you did ask me what I'm working on, and it was the Kokum Nipika, which is very... But um, actually, I'm writing a book about Marianne Moore and Jim Thorpe mm. at uh, Carlisle Indian mm-hmm. School. Um the greatest poet 
of the 20th century encounters the greatest athlete of the 20th century. Interesting. Huh. Wow. And so... Uh, were they were they friends or they had an affair? See, or? there's... No, I, I don't know. I, I don't think they had an affair. But I definitely think there was something there. I definitely hmm. think there was... Because he appears in a picture, a photograph of her class. But as I understand it, he wasn't in her class. Oh, <laughs> and wow. And there's, there's a story by Plimpton... Um, and Marianne Moore talks about Jim Thorpe carrying her glory umbrella from the you know, umbrella from the sun as they're walking down the railroad tracks together. Mm. And she was there when he pretty much single handedly beat Harvard. Ah, uh, yeah, football, right. You know, in his big shoes. Mm-hmm. And she saw that game. Wow. And then all of her poetry is kind of. Nobody can figure out her poetry. I've like read all these books and people keep saying all this stuff. And I think that. Um, and I'd be curious what you guys thought, but I think there's a lot, just a lot of sexual tension in her poetry, mm. a lot of um, animal kind of attraction, and you mm. know. And I thought, huh? So like, it just seems. Like I need to go back and reread it now that I know. <laughs> in this spot, like <clears throat> so, so uh, it's, but it's made me change my writing style. I mean, because mm. I am not writing through Jim Thorpe. Mm. I'm so it's not a novel, Marianne. it's going to be like no, a non-fiction no, thing? No, or? it's m- through Marianne Moore's eyes, it's a novel. Oh, okay, cool. awesome. So it's a fictionalized that account of their relationship. Mm. And, uh, That's great. Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny, isn't it? How you, how you come across stories and they, they sort of come to you. And I, I kept thinking, I kept like pushing that away. Mm. And then it just got stronger and stronger. <laughs> and I thought, oh, right. I, I need to... I need to write that. So, so I'm actually do. looking for it. There, there's no violence in this, <laughs> except maybe, you know, except when they took his medals, which is kind of a uh, spiral of violence. But that was crazy. Yeah. yeah. Well, cool. Well, I, I think it's safe to say we we both love both of these books. Uh, Absolutely. By Deborah Magpie Erling. And The Indian Lawyer by James Welch. Highly recommend. Yes. Read them. We need to thank some people that have helped make this uh, podcast possible. We have a sponsor, Isle of Books in Bozeman and Butte. And we had some people that contributed to a a fundraiser that we did a few months ago. And we also have Montana Arts Council. Yeah, Montana Arts Council gave us a grant uh, just recently. So thanks to all those folks for helping keep this thing going. Next episode, we're going to be interviewing a friend of ours named Elise Atchison, who just recently published her very first novel, Crazy Mountain. And we're pairing her up with Thomas McGuane, a book called Crow Fair. Yeah, someone you've probably heard of. Yeah, so we're looking forward to that discussion. And thanks, everyone. Tune in next time.
They say my father was a Comanchero 